I uh, was listening to your Q&A from 2019 for the end of your podcast. So your podcast is the Professionals Playbook. Yes. Really great podcast. Um, you, got, you, you basically interview a lot of people at the, at the top of your field, uh, top of their, at the top of their field, sorry, and kind of what, what it is that they do and things like that. So I guess what was, uh, what was, what, what was what it that inspired you to interview these experts and what kind of got you going on that path? Uh, yeah, so I, it started a couple years ago. I was asked to speak uh, on Memorial Day. They wanted somebody who had been to combat. And so I gave a speech and there was a woman in the crowd who worked for the Veterans Heritage Project and they're a, a nonprofit. <clears throat> and so she asked me if I could come start uh, speaking at schools and I started doing that. And after doing that for a while, I realized there's probably a better way to communicate with, uh, with more than just the physical crowd. So I uh, started a podcast and it's kind of since grown from just fighter pilot specific to people in other fields coming on and sharing their successes, their failures, their lessons learned, how they overcame failures. And it's, it's grown and it's been a fun project for me. I think that's really cool that you're doing. I mean, you have this very intensive career where you're doing your, all the stuff that you do, right? Which I actually, are you, are you teaching right now too? Are you, is that what's going on as well as, as long with the, the fighter pilot stuff? I am teaching new pilots here. So I teach pilots who have come from pilot training or fighter pilots who've flown the F-16, F-15, F-22 who are transitioning into the F-35. Mm, okay. And, that, and that's primarily what you're doing right now. Yeah, that, that's my main job. Podcasting is just kind of a hobby. Right, right. Yeah. But I think that's awesome that you're doing that. And then you also have time for this sort of creative hobby on the side. I think that's, that's really cool. And you actually did a, you did a podcast about creativity and how being creative can actually help you in, your, in other fields besides just cre the creative ones, right? Yeah, I had on uh, Drew Katioka and she's a famous artist and she actually was part of the first uh, zero gravity art exhibit where they sent art to the International Space Station. Oh, wow. And so, I don't know, growing up, I always thought of art on kind of one side and science on the other. And so I knew I wanted to be a pilot and I biased towards the, the science side. Right. So I didn't really nurture the artistic side. But now that I've been flying for a while, I realized that the best pilots are very creative in terms of being able to solve complex problems. Mm -hmm. And her theory, which I tend to agree with, is art helps build that creativity muscle so that you can use it in other fields. She put it a lot better than I did, but I think she said that art is like a double shot of espresso for your mm. creativity. Yeah, I remember that, yeah. So did you study science at the academy or did, what did you study? I did. I studied systems engineering. So bringing okay. different, uh, different uh, sciences together is kind of, or engineering wise is kind of my, uh, what interests me. And it's kind of similar to flying. When we fly, we have a bunch of different variables that we're trying to, to balance. And that's what a systems engineer does. It's like mm. a car. You could have a, if you want a car to go around the track as fast as possible, you have to balance the engine size with the brakes, with the suspension. So you have to kind of balance all those variables uh, to make the sum more than just the parts. What is the reason for why you're really drawn to this sort of people at the top of their fields? What is it about that that inspired you enough to want to create a podcast around it? Well, at least in, in my field, the fighter pilot world, we get to do a lot of training and we get taught a lot of interesting things. But 
most of that knowledge stays within the field. And for no other reason than I think all of us are busy. And I think other fields are similar to that. Doctors, lawyers, scientists, they all have been trained to do some amazing things. But just because they're so busy in their profession, they don't get a chance to share that with the outside world. Yeah. And so I think a lot of these professionals, they've made it to the top of their field. So they know kind of those keys to success. And it's amazing how similar some of them are. Mm. And I wanted to find a way to share that with the, with the audience. And do you find that you learn a lot of things yourself as you're talking to these people? About, oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. I probably, probably learned the most. And so <laughs> as a fighter pilot, if you ask any fighter pilot where most of the learning happens, it's in the debrief. So we'll mm. go and we'll fly at like an hour and a half sortie with our hair on fire, trying to make thousands of decisions. But then afterwards, we'll debrief this one and a half hour sortie for two to six hours. And we'll go through every decision that was made. And we'll spend 90% of that time on the 10% that didn't go well. So we're not really patting ourselves on the back and having beers. We're going through everything that went wrong. And we'll listen to a radio call for 10 times to see what we should have done. Mm. And so this podcast is, is similar. I'm trying to find those lessons learned. And yeah, I, I write down things I learned from each podcast episode to hopefully use that in my toolbox. And it's gotten a great reception. It's, it was, uh, I think, called one of the top podcasts 2019. Did you do a lot of work to market it and promote it or was it mostly by word of mouth? Yeah, I, I did a lot of work on Instagram. So it was, it was tough. So I've kind of kept a low key social media profile until about a year and a half ago. And then mm. started ramping that up. I didn't have an Instagram account. I didn't have a Twitter, none of that stuff. Mm. But I knew I wanted to start this podcast. And so that required social media marketing. And so I started Instagram and read up on all the best practices for that. And I've, I've, grown that. And that's actually helped out quite a bit in terms of getting new audience members. You know, I had a, I had, I had a thought about this because you have a pretty great um, Instagram following. And I know a lot of people who listen to this podcast are also actively growing their social media. What are some of the things you did to connect with your, your desired audience on Instagram? I think it's a lot about content. And for me, kind of, as a military member, you kind of want to keep things quiet. You don't want to, you're kind of taught to not do anything against the grain. Mm, and mm. so for me, kind of getting over that mental hurdle of, of actually putting content out there took a while. But once mm. I, once I kind of overcame that, I just started putting more and more content out there. And I try to put out my, my goal is five pieces of Instagram content a week. And I've also uh, started LinkedIn and uh, I put out three pieces of content on LinkedIn a week. Mm, okay. So that's that's kind of the biggest thing. And then there's more nuance in terms of video and hashtags and, and things like that. But I think for most people, including myself, the biggest thing is kind of getting over, over that fear of what other people are going to think of all this content mm. that you're putting out there. Yeah. And I imagine there's probably an added element because you are in the, you're in the military and you're probably coming face to face with top secret stuff. I'm, I'm assuming here and there. So you probably have to filter it in your mind. Like, what can I share? What can't I share? Does that, does that ever occur to you or? Sure. Yeah. You, have, you really have to watch what you say. So the air force is actually pretty lenient in social media and podcasts and things like that. 
basically they say, don't say anything that you shouldn't. Mm. And so we're, we're allowed to go on these podcasts and to have an Instagram account, have a Twitter, but you really can't screw up. You don't want to say anything inappropriate. You don't want to obviously say anything that uh, has operational security, things mm. like that. So you do really have to watch yourself. And there is that added element being in the military. So I noticed when I was uh, listening to your Q&A, start to kind of get back to what I was saying earlier from 2019, you mentioned that you've always seen yourself as doing something that's going to have an element of danger to it. What, what do you think it is about danger that you find so interesting and motivating to pursue in a career? I think the stakes are high. So mm. it's, it's easy to, in my opinion, to, to make decisions when the stakes aren't very high. But as you ratchet up the, mis- the, the stakes, then it gets harder and harder to execute. And mm. being in the military, we're, we're faced with sometimes life and death decisions. And for me, that, uh, that's, it's exciting to be able to, to be in the mix of that in a high stakes uh, environment, trying to make good decisions. So mm. it, it goes, I think it's the extension of sports. I played a lot of sports growing up, played baseball. Uh, I was a pitcher. So it's just you and the batter out there. You're kind of on your own island. Mm-hmm. And then I went on to, at the Air Force Academy, I boxed. And so that added an element of risk in there. Uh, we used to have sports psychologists come in because the the Air Force Academy is in Colorado Springs, which is where the Olympic Training Center is. And so mm. we have these sports psychologists come in and they would talk to uh, visualization, self-talk, uh, staying in the present moment, mm. all these different things. Because boxing is tough. You are training uh, to get into a ring with somebody that has been training just as long, if not longer than you, to, to, to try and hurt you. So, yeah. So going in the military and flying is kind of the extension of that executing at a high level. Oh yeah. And there's a, there's a lot of mental toughness you get from those, those pure combat sports like that. Yeah. The, the mental toughness aspect has, has really in terms of sports psychology has really helped out quite a bit for me and flying. We, when I uh, started pilot training, that was, that was about 10 years ago. We didn't really incorporate too much of that into our training, but we have since started incorporating sports psychologists into what we do, physical uh, trainers, physical therapists. And so we're really adopting that high performance mindset and, uh, and working out the whole, whole system to try and optimize our performance. Because when we fly, we're kind of in between uh, like a pure athlete and, uh, you know, someone who goes and works in a cubicle. We're at <laughs> a seat. Right, right. But but we're pulling up to nine G's. So right now mm. I'm at 200 pounds mm. and with my gear on probably 230. And how tall are nine you? G's, I'm a uh, two. Okay. So we're about the same height. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so yeah, 230 pounds with my gear on at nine G's. That's over 2000 pounds of force on your body. Mm, right, right. And so you're just trying to stay awake because that blood is being pulled out of your brain. And if you, if enough blood is pulled out, then you will actually go unconscious. Oh, wow. Not a good thing to happen in a single seat plane. So how do you so, prepare for that? You, uh, it's the to- total system. So working out is a big, big thing that we do. Uh, I'll work out five times a week, about 45 minutes uh, each, making sure to, to prioritize legs and cardio because you're trying to squeeze mm. that blood back into your brain. Mm. Um, making sure that you eat well, making sure that you sleep, 
making sure that you're hydrated is a huge one because if you're 2% dehydrated, then your G tolerance will go down by 20%. Mm -hmm. So it's very important to take care of your body, take care of the stresses in your life. Every aspect lowers your G tolerance a little bit. Mm. As I'm sitting here, I could probably pull 11 and a half, 12 G's maybe. Mm -hmm. But if you don't sleep well, if you don't eat well, if you haven't worked out for a while, that can all decrease your G tolerance. Mm. It just takes one time to be at eight and a half G's, your body, and then to pull nine and mm. end up passing out and, and killing yourself. So, oh, shoot. So it's important. We have a, what's called an AGSM, anti-G straining maneuver, where we're squeezing our legs and butt mm. and pushing that blood back into our brain. Mm. We also wear a G suit, which also helps squeeze the legs. So it's a whole, whole bunch of stuff that goes into trying to, to maintain these Gs because it's right on the human limit. So with all that uh, athletic side of it, is there, like an, is there an age that people usually say, okay, this is, I'm at the limit of what I can do physically to be a, to be a fighter pilot? Or can you, can you do this at any age or what does that look like? So the, I guess the oldest you can join pilot training would be 33 years ago. 33 years old. Most mm. people who join are in their early 20s and most careers last 20 years because it, it's, it's real taxing on the body. Right. We're having a lot of uh, men and women who have neck and back issues because mm. of all this force. Just on your neck, it's probably 135 pounds at 9G. So that's a mm. barbell and two 45-pound plates on your neck under G. So it's not great for, for longevity I am going to be joining the reserves at the end of this year, which will allow me, if my body can make it, to, to fly into my early 50s. Okay. So it'll allow me to fly for the next 15 to 20 years if my body can take it. So we'll see. Mm. And you have, a, you have a kid on the way, right? I do have a kid on the way. So any, any day now. Okay. And is that, is that changing your mindset a little bit on danger? Or are, you still, <laughs> are you still feeling the same way? <laughs> Uh, I, I feel the same way. So I don't take stupid risks. Pilots mm, mm -hmm. are very, I think, I think they're pretty good at assessing risk and seeing what the benefit is and taking smart risks. So mm. I don't, I don't drive a motorcycle. I, uh, I guess I skydived a couple of times in, in college, but I, I don't do that anymore. Flying is, is what I enjoy doing. And mm. I, think I'm good at and I can actually help people on the battlefield. So it's sure. something that I'm passionate about and that's worth the risk to me, but I, I don't take unnecessary risks. That's one thing that's, that's worth it. And we'll have, we're, we're pretty good. We have a operational risk management tool. So all that stuff, whether you have distractions at home, whether it's a complex mission, whether the weather is bad, all these things add up. And so every time we fly, we will update this uh, ORM spreadsheet. And mm. if it's too high, then we won't fly. So I think we're really good at assessing risk and, and not taking unnecessary risk. So have you given any thought to what you're going to do once that 20 year career is over? I've not. So I'm 10 years, um, I guess, uh, 11 years into my career mm. at this point. So joining the reserve, so active duty, normally your total career would be 20 years. By joining the reserves now, I will be able to extend that to 28 to 30, year, mm, okay. 30 years, but that's, that's still pretty far off. I really enjoy podcasting right now. Um, I find getting the word out is, is pretty, uh, it's, it's fun to find ways to, to do that. So 
that's kind of my, my hobby. And as I join the reserves and, and pair back my flying, I'll probably ramp that up a little bit more. Okay. But you have four air medals, right? I do. And what does that mean exactly? Air medals you get for the number of missions that you have flown. So okay. I've flown 82 missions in combat. And so th- there's a whole bunch of different things, but for the ones that I got, it was uh, every 20 missions you would get an air medal. Mm. And so I guess, what is that, what is that feeling like then of being in, in active combat? Is it, is it like, what's the, what's that? Th- is it like a total thrill? Is it super scary? Or what does that feel like? A lot of mixed emotions. So mm. it, it is, we, we train so, so much. We, like I said, we will debrief an hour sortie for two to six hours and you'll do that for years and years and years. And finally getting the chance to go to combat is a, it's a surreal experience because you've put in so much time. Some, some guys put in 10 years, 15 years before they get a chance to, to go into combat. So for one, you get to start executing what you've been training to for your almost whole life. So that's, that's pretty, uh, pretty awesome to be doing, but yeah, there is an added, uh, risk element. These low intensity conflicts like Afghanistan, Iraq, we're not taking the, the losses that people in the first Gulf War did mm, in mm-hmm. Vietnam, people in World War II. So we are not taking anywhere near the risk that they are. But being, the guys on the ground, they, some of them are. So we would be supporting special, special ops forces that were doing clearing ops and we'd be flying overhead and dropping, dropping bombs and, and helping them out. So it was immensely satisfying to be able to, to help those guys on the ground out, especially when they are in uh, tough situations. Mm-hmm. But uh, there, there is an ad, there is an element of risk. So I, I strafed three times and uh, on the, the third time strafing, I could see AK 47 rounds being shot at me. So there's a little bit of What's risk strafing? there uh, using the gun. Mm, so okay. we typically use smart bombs and laser guided rockets, things like that. But mm. as a last resort, if we've used all that ordnance, we have a MF-16, M61 uh, Gatling gun. So uh, six barrels. Uh, it can shoot 6,000 rounds a minute. We only carry 500 rounds, so you can mm. burn all your ammo in, in five seconds. But you get a lot closer than when you're dropping the, the smart bombs. So there's a little bit of added uh, element of risk there. Mm. Mm-hmm. The biggest thing is flying at night in Afghanistan with mountains that are 20 plus thousand feet. So these mountains are, are as tall as you're, you're flying in a, in an airliner. So being able to employ next to these mountains, helping to support the people on the ground without running into them is, is quite a challenge. And then you're also in a single seat jet. So these F-16s, they were designed in the seventies. They were built in the nineties. They only have one engine. Oftentimes, there would only be two of us airborne in the entire AOR, and we would be doing what's called yo-yo ops. So we, there, we have a tanker that's probably 100 miles away, and if we wanted to maintain persis- persistent coverage, we would have one of us go to the tanker while the other person stayed overhead. So mm. as you're transiting from, from the, uh, the AOR to the tanker, you're all by yourself, and mm. you're pretty comfortable. You have air conditioning, you have heat if you need it, but you are always aware that you're on top of a single engine plane. And if that engine decides to shell itself, 
you're five minutes away from having to outrun the Taliban or ISIS who mm. are, who are going to be trying to chase you down. And so is it, a, is it different than you imagined it would be? I think it's pretty close to, to what I imagined it would be mm. because we train as re- realistically as we can. One thing that, that struck me was how much of a team player everybody is. So when mm. I went to Afghanistan, there would be, we were doing 24-hour ops. There was only a two-ship airborne at any given time. As the flight lead, I would be in charge of 100% of the fast casts in the country. So we're at the tip of the spear, but there are thousands of people that are helping you out. There's intelligence officers that are working to nominate targets. There's, mm. uh, there's tanker pilots that are taken off from other countries to, to refuel your plane in the air. There's thousands of people working, and they would bend over backwards to help us out. So that, that team aspect was really cool to see because back in the States, everybody's still a team in the Air Force, but people are kind of on their own island. Mm. They have their own objectives. And when you go to combat, the objective is to, to help out the, the shooters out there to, uh, to be able to have a successful mission. I imagine there's also probably, before you get into doing all of this stuff, there's probably also a lot of competition up front, right? Which I don't know, does that, does that, that may or may not, encourage like collaboration and teamwork up when you're, you're training to become even just to get into that fighter pilot spot. Right. Yeah. It's, it's pretty tough. So I went to the air force Academy, a couple different routes to becoming an officer, but going to the air force Academy, they let about 10% of applicants in while you're at the air force Academy. We had about 20% of people end up washing out mm. most, mostly grades or some sort of, um, they got in trouble. Yeah. We, we, we have like an honor code and if you break that, then you can get kicked out. So 20% of people ended up washing out there and a lot of people weren't medically qualified. So, and, and you wouldn't know. So you would take a physical year two or three into the academy and some people would come back at lunch and say, I have a heart murmur. I can't be a pilot now. I'm going to mm. do something else in the Air mm. Force. So we lost quite a few people to not being medically qualified. In fact, the day before my physical, I ruptured my eardrum. Oh, shoot. Boxing. And oh, so shoot. I, yeah, it was, it, was, uh, it was not enjoyable, and I thought I might have just uh, blown my career right there. Turns out uh, they were able to – I told the, the doctor, and they said, all right, we can give you another physical in six months. I saw a specialist. They were able to – they put a little piece of paper over your eardrum and the skin grows back. Mm. And I was able to pass six months later, but okay. came very close to, to medically disqualifying myself right there. Oh, man. And then out of the Air Force Academy, you go to pilot training. First, you start off in low-performance prop planes. And so they're Diamond DA-20s. You go to Pueblo, Colorado. It's a six-week course. And 20% of the people washed out there. And they're just trying to see, do you have the aptitude to fly more high performance aircraft. And then you show up to pilot training. I remember day one, the wing commander of the base came in. He's a, he's, he was an 06. So he was in charge of the whole base of thousands of people. And he gave us a, a minor pep talk. And then he, then he said, all right, I want you guys to close your eyes. I want you to raise your hand if you want to be a fighter pilot. And mm-hmm. there are 30 of us. I raised my hand. He said, open your eyes. And all 30 of us had their, our, our hand raised and mm. he said, 
good luck. We'll see. And he walked out. <laughs> so that's why I say a minor pep talk right there. Yeah. Yeah. And so then you go on to fly the T6 Texan two, and that's a high performance prop plane. I think it has 1100 horsepower. So it's almost like a P51 Mustang from back in world war two. And it was awesome. Lots of fun, lots of horsepower. And you do that for six months. And then at the end of that, they have seven spots to go on the fighter track. And they're about, again, about 20% of people washed out. So about 20 people went to the, to the tanker and the transport route. And they, they would fly more Learjet type planes for their training. We went to the T-38 track, the seven of us that got selected for that. And you fly the supersonic jet trainer that was designed in the 50s. So it is very, very aerodynamic in order to go supersonic, but it's very, very underpowered, which means that it's very tough to land at low speed. It's, mm -hmm. it's called a lawn dart because its wings are just so small. And so you learn how to fly on that another six months there. And for my class, at least, there are seven of us that that went into that. And I think three or four got selected for fighters. At mm. that. So wow. it was, it was stressful. It was tough, but I mean, I, I had a blast. I, I loved sports growing up. I did not love school, even though I did okay at it. Mm. I didn't really find my calling until I was flying. It mm. was, uh, it was pretty, pretty cool to be great graded by how well you flew. Mm. Yeah, I had a friend who was who served in in the military, and he started when he was pretty young, and he said something to me that kind of I kind of stuck with me. Not you know I'm not I've never served in the military, but he he mentioned that being a soldier is not something that you just do. It's it's something that really is a vocation, like it's something you're called to do. And that was his opinion after having served. Do you think that? Do you yeah. think there's some truth in that? Absolutely. Uh, you especially as a air to air and air to ground fighter pilot, which is what we do in the F-16 as well as the F-35, the learning never stops. You mm. are always learning. You always feel like you are not as prepared as you want to be. Mm. So that's, it's one of those things where, where you have to train every day and the knowledge is perishable. In the F-35, we are getting new updates every couple of months. We're updating our tactics. So if you take a couple months off, you will be well behind the jet. So every day you have to go in and prove yourself and so I, I i like that it's it's a little bit stressful but it makes you makes you a good pilot and that, that's something also that I, I really liked about your um one of the podcasts i was listening to you that you did about the uh your q a is that you talk a lot about how how to actually get to be how to, what it takes to become a fighter pilot and it's, i kind of feel like a lot of people don't actually realize how difficult it is actually uh, I mean, it's difficult, but it's, it's definitely not impossible. There are mm -hmm. a couple of different routes. If you're listening to this and you want to be uh, a fighter pilot in the Air Force, you can go to the Air Force Academy. That's, that's what I did. You, can, you need to start applying your junior year of high school. If, if you are going to a, a normal college, you can still do ROTC. So that's offered at a thousand, over 1,000 colleges. So you can do ROTC. Uh, if you've already graduated from college, you can go to officer training school, OTS. And lastly, if you've already gotten your degree, you can apply directly to a guard base. So I didn't even know about the guard option. When I showed up to pilot training, yeah, there's, there's a guy there who already knew he was going to fly fighters. And it mm. shocked me 
because he applied directly to a guard base and every or most states have a national guard. And so these pilots report to the state as opposed to the federal government like I do. In times of crisis or war, they'll be activated by the by the federal government and they'll be doing the same things that I do. But yeah, there are a whole bunch of different routes, a couple misconceptions. Uh, you don't need to have perfect vision. Oh, okay. That's, 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 that's one I hear all the time. <laughs> I, I still hear that all the time too. My, In fact, my father wanted to be a, a fighter pilot when he was younger. This is way back in the day, but his eyes weren't good enough. Okay. So it just needs, your eyes need to be correctable to 2020. So okay. I would say about a quarter of the pilots I fly with fly with glasses. Mm. One thing you don't want to do is you don't want to get LASIK or some side of, some sort of surgery before you enter the Air Force. That can actually disqualify you because the Air Force really wants to make sure you're doing it the proper way. Mm. Um, so yeah, you don't need perfect vision. Uh, right now, the age limit is 33 years old. Um, those are probably the two biggest questions I get. Do I need perfect vision? And what is the, the age limit for becoming a pilot? I wonder what caused that, that perfect vision thing to get spread around because that's the one I always hear. Well, it used to be like that. Oh, it okay. used to that's be like that, but they've, they've since, since, uh, okay. And that's why your dad back, couldn't do it. it. That's yeah. that, okay. That makes sense. And what did, what did your dad end up serving in the military? He did not. He went on to serve in the, the department of energy as a okay. physicist. Oh, that's really cool. Mm-hmm. So yeah, uh, my brother, he's, uh, he's in the Navy, so he's flying. Oh, pilots. oh, okay. Uh, really? Yeah. Unfortunately, we haven't got a chance to fly against each other. I'm still waiting for that day. <laughs> Older brother or younger brother? Younger brother. Oh, okay. How much younger? Mm-hmm. Five years. Okay. And how, how old are you? I am 34. 34. Okay. Nice. What are, what's something that people often get wrong about you that you feel people get wrong about you? I think as fighter pilots, we can have a reputation of kind of being kind of that, uh, I guess I, it was probably come, went back to Top Gun. Yeah. I was going to say Top Gun. <laughs> kind of being uh, arrogant and... Mm being uh, self-centered, that kind of thing. But as I've become uh, more experienced as a fighter pilot, we are in charge of these missions that we go out. Mm. And so when we go to Red Flag, we'll be in charge of 75 aircraft. And Mm. they'll be from all different fields. So we'll have F-35s, we'll have F-16s, we'll have bombers, we'll have transport planes, we'll have space people, we'll have cyber people. So as a fighter pilot, you can't just go in there and I, and be arrogant and be a jerk because our job as the mission commander of these missions is to bring the team together and make the sum more than the parts. Mm. And so we work pretty hard uh, to, to be humble, to be credible, and to bring the team together and to be a team player. Now, you still need to have a lot of confidence. You still sure. need to believe that you can execute the mission but you don't need a whole lot of that, that arrogance. It tends to rub people the wrong way mm. and isn't great at building the team and fostering other people to, to give their best. It, d- it definitely seems like you have to be a pretty special kind of person. Like it's not just about, like you say, showing up and being cocky. It seems like you have to really have a really solid foundation to, to excel at this. Yeah. And the, the best people that I've, the best pilots that I know, as well as the people I've had on the podcast, astronauts and thunderbirds they are all extremely humble and i think the more you learn the more you realize that 
you don't know at all. So mm. as, a, as an instructor here, we have new people coming through. We try to instill that on the new pilots that you need to be humble uh, to be able to, uh, to get other people to buy into what you're mm. doing. Mm-hmm. I think that's super cool. And you seem like a very humble, um, very even-tempered kind of guy from just from the from your podcast and talking to you now. So that's awesome. Well, having equanimity is, is important too, especially for us flying. So you kind of when you when you're going on a mission, you don't want to make you don't want to make emotional decisions. Mm-hmm. You want to stay even keeled. Because oftentimes you are the most removed from the battlefield. If you are supporting JTACs, those are specialized soldiers on the ground that can mm. call in airstrikes, oftentimes there'll be bullets whizzing over their head. And so you can kind of be at the 15,000 foot level making, making the good decisions up there. Mm. Because at the end of the day, that's what we do as fighter pilots. We make decisions. And we'll make thousands of decisions each flight. And you're going to make some bad decisions. And the important thing is to not let the train go off the tracks. Mm. Making bad decisions, that's that's fine. Nobody's had a perfect flight mm. ever. So you're gonna make you're gonna make bad decisions. Just accept that, keep moving forward, and then in the debrief, now we can dig through everything and see what we can do better next time. Mm. Yes, that's one thing that's coming back to mind now as I'm as I'm thinking about this, is that you actually mentioned that it's not just to become a fighter pilot, people come from people come from all sorts of different backgrounds, right? Like in terms of academics. So, like you mentioned, that you fly with people who are English majors and history majors, right? Yeah, any 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 major. You do not need to be uh, to have a technical major. All right, man. So uh, I want to definitely help you reach as many people as possible with your uh, with your kind of message and stuff. So, where can people find you online? Yeah, you can find me at Justin Fighter Pilot on Instagram and Justin Hazard Lee, and that's Hazard with an S mm. on LinkedIn. So those okay. are the two primary ways that I market. The podcast is called The Professionals Playbook, and you can find that anywhere where you listen to podcasts. So those are the primary ways. And then are you on Twitter at all? I'm not on Twitter. I kind of was late to the fight on that. And mm. so I've I've uh, kind of pared it down to just LinkedIn, to Instagram, and I'm kind of seeing what's going on on TikTok. It's kind of the wild mm. west right now. There's kind of a first mover advantage mm. going on with that. So I'm, I'm kind of trying to figure out what's going on there. Dude, TikTok scares me because of the, the China tie. That's true. That's the thing I, I mean, don't like about it. Yeah. Yeah, but like, like it's, it's actually based in Beijing. So I'm kind of, in terms of giving them my information, I mean, it's already bad enough giving it to Zuckerberg, but I figure at least he's, you know, <laughs> over the, in San Francisco. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty crazy how much information we give up to, uh, yeah, to these tech companies. So yeah. We'll see if that bites us. <laughs> I have a feeling, I don't know. We'll see with TikTok. I think that they're trying to, I've read that they're trying to distance themselves from China just a little bit, mm-hmm. just because of that reason, but. We'll see. All right. Awesome, man. Thank you so much. Um, Yeah. Thanks. Thanks a lot for joining. It was awesome. Great. Thanks for having me on it. It's been a pleasure.